Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Tom Weld, a Solicitor and Director of the Construction and Engineering Team at Burgess Salmon, an international law firm with particular expertise advising on building and fire safety issues. I'll give you the website at the end of the podcast. Tom advises on dispute avoidance and dispute resolution procedures. And prior to becoming a legal practitioner, Tom worked in an architect's office. And so given that we're going to talk about the Building Safety Act, he understands this particular issue from both sides. This is part two of a podcast discussion with Burgess Salmon. The first part was with Kayla Rabansky on the Building Safety Regulator and Principal Designer Duties. And today we're going to talk about other duties and competencies and much more besides. So thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for joining us. So we start in the usual manner, I suppose, asking you how you got into the law and what did the law offer that architecture didn't? Thanks, Austin. Um, so what got me into the law in the first place? I, I've actually got a degree in architecture, but I, I kind of came to the conclusion that I probably wouldn't make a very good architect after some with, with some experience. And I, I appreciate, you know, what a difficult profession it is. As part of my law degree, uh, sorry, architecture degree, we'd had to do a law module. I really enjoyed the law module. So I decided to retrain as a lawyer. But given my interest in construction and my architectural background, construction law seemed to be the, the, the sort of the natural home for me within the legal profession. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So where did you study? Uh, Bath University. For both? Uh, no, Bath University for architecture, Exeter University for, for my law degree. So look, today we're looking at accountability in the Building Safety Act, in, in essence. Um, so can I start by looking at the issue of competency, because I've had a lot of kind of correspondence from, from people asking what it means. And I understand that incompetence is probably something that will be defined by the courts. But the Act only really says, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it says the billing regulations may, in relation to any work, impose competence requirements on A, any appointed person, and B, any prescribed person. So first of all, A and B, where are they? The Building Safety Act enables the Secretary of State to impose competency requirements on the construction industry. And as you say, the Act refers to any appointed person or any prescribed person. So an appointed person is someone appointed by the client to carry out design or construction works. And then any other prescribed person is a bit of flexibility within the Act for the Secretary of State to extend those regulations. So just in sort of digging into those concepts in a bit more detail and to paraphrase the building regulations amendment regulations 2023 any person or organization carrying out building work and or design work must have the necessary skills knowledge experience behaviors and for an organization capability to carry out design work so that the design will be in accordance with the building regulations if it's built and in relation to building work the work must be in accordance with the building regulations. There's an additional competence requirement so that if a party is to be appointed as either the principal designer or the principal contractor, um, I think we'll come on to discuss those roles in a bit more detail later, but they must be also competent to fulfil those roles. Yeah, that's that's fine. You could say that's, you know, ever has it been thus that you had to be recently competent, although I'm sure that the Lord has determined over the years that there's many people who aren't, but it's the client who must take reasonable steps, courts, reasonable steps to satisfy themselves that those duty holders are competent and they must also refuse to accept an appointment for works that, that they're not competent to deliver. So how's how's that going to pan out, do you think? We're already, as, as a firm, we're already amending appointments and contracts to require the professionals and contractors to firstly provide 
evidence of their competence to carry out their role so that the employer can f- comply with its duties to take reasonable steps to confirm whether the people are competent and also to require professionals and contractors to warrant to the employer that they have the required competencies to fulfill those roles. So I'd imagine those kind of moments will become standard in consultant appointments and contracts uh, in the future. With regards to people refusing to accept an appointment, um, we have already encountered a number of instances where architects have declined to be appointed as a principal designer on a project. That's because they've raised a number of uh, concerns over their appointment. It's firstly, they, they, they're not entirely certain that they are competent to fulfil that role. And secondly, that they're not certain that their PI insurance will cover them accepting that role. So I think that's going to be a live issue going forwards. But I would anticipate that it will become less of an issue as the industry gets to grips with the new competency requirements and to the extent necessary upskills to fulfil those competency requirements. And then also, I mean, once we get a better handle on on the whole process, I think the insurance market will become more comfortable with the new regime and we'll have better understanding that um, people's PI insurance will cover them carrying out these roles. That's fair enough. But I'm just kind of I'm just imagining that, you know, there's going to be a lot of certification schemes out there. Because when you say I am competent and you're going through a process of getting people to tell you that they're competent, how do they do that? They say, oh, I've been on a course. They say, I've got experience. They say, here's a certificate of compliance. How does that work? And then the second one, which you just mentioned about how architects are refusing to take on PD roles, what's the implication of that then? Is that, does that mean the client has to then find somebody else who has control over the, the process or, or, or what? Anyway, just take those in, in order if you can. Well, um, just reversing the order. I mean, talking about the client taking, you know, finding someone else to carry out the PD role then, um, or, or the, yes, the, the, the principal designer role. But yes, if they can't, if the architect's not comfortable taking on that role, they they are going to have to find someone else to carry out that function. Um, so I don't know. We we might be moving away, well, moving towards larger multi-skilled design consultancies providing these services. Going back to look at competence and what it means, I think as you suggested, competence is a very nebulous concept and. There has been a lot of debate across the industry as to how this should be assessed and who should be doing the assessment. I mean, after all, who's actually qualified to assess the the assessors themselves are competent. (laughs) So what we have at the moment, most professional bodies are looking at this and we'd like to see, as I think as you alluded to, a whole series of new guidances being issued, um, courses and qualifications being developed over time to satisfy this competence requirement. I think in the meantime, if I was looking to, if if I was a professional looking to demonstrate competence, I would look to ensure that I and those I employed, if relevant, were properly qualified to fulfil their role. So do you have, you know, your necessary degree in architecture? So you make make sure CPD is undertaken so that your subject matter knowledge is up to date. I think as an organisation, I'd compile a record of appropriate experience on any sort of related project so that I could demonstrate experience, you know, of working on similar projects. I mean, you'd probably do that anyway from a business development point of view, but, you know, it's useful to have that kind of information collated and stored. And I think also as an organisation, ensure that my organisational capabilities are mapped out. So do we have the right people in place to fulfil these roles? and um, make sure there's appropriate procedures in place so we've got change control policies etc so that we can you know effectively demonstrate our capability to provide a service something i would also just mention that there's a couple of new publicly available standards being published 
8671, which sets out a framework for identifying competency thresholds for designers to meet in order to act as a principal designer. There's also PASS 8672, which sets out a framework identifying competency thresholds for contractors in order they can act as principal contractors. So using those frameworks won't definitively evidence your competence. Following the frameworks will assist in evidencing it and at the very least provides guidance on the issues you'll need to cover. All right. Well, look, since you mentioned it, let me just read this out if you if you can bear with me, if you can if you can bear it. Uh, <laughs> so working definition of competency is included in the public accessible standard. PAS 8671 for architects. And it says that a PAS, I mean, I know we've had these for quite some time, but a PAS is a fast-track standardization document created by a closed circle of industry mandarins, as far as I can see. And in turn, this PAS 8671 refers to BSI Flex 8670, where a flex standard provides a, quote, new flexible way to develop consensus-based good practice, a dynamic approach to standardization best suited to areas with lower levels of certainty about what constitutes a good approach and where higher levels of flexibility are required. I mean, to me, this is this is madness. I mean, maybe not to you, but, uh, you know, these aren't British standards. You know, these are kind of lobby group interventions, aren't they? Uh, and who's to say they're any good? Presumably they say it's good. Well, again, I think what we're looking at here is an, an issue of a developing practice area. These aren't prescriptive ways of demonstrating competence. It's not a tick box um, process where you, you, know, you answer this question, yes, answer that question, yes. Um, as I say, it's a framework for trying to demonstrate guidance. So I think if you look at it as this is a starting point and then to take away, you know, you know these issues need to be looked at. And then you just need to sort of exercise professional judgment in looking at that and, and how you answer it. But it's just saying it's, it's a developing area at the moment and then it's going to take some time to bed in. I know, but there you are saying it's a developing area, it takes some time to bed in. But in good old British tradition, we just introduced the legislation two months ago. We're recording this in December. It came in October the 1st, talking about competency. Uh, you will have to kind of argue for client competency in a court of law, presumably, if push comes to shove. And yet, you know, it's kind of cart before the horse here, isn't it? So there there must be some something that we can kind of hold on to other than this past standard. I mean, is it are we reinventing a concept of competency or is it what it's always been? That you know what the hell you're doing? Commonsensical. I think this is sort of a common sense approach. It's like an elephant. You'll know it when you see it. It's very hard to describe, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and as you say, having to argue in, in a court of law, I mean, th this is in the finest tradition of the British um, sort of legal legal system, the common law system. Until we get some court guidance on this, we, 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 we don't really know what it's going to mean. We're all in the dark on this, Austin. <laughs> no, that's 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 not exactly what I wanted to hear there, but uh, that'll do for me. Um, that's probably why you've moved to law, isn't it, uh, from architecture? <laughs> anyway, uh, look. So let's let's just quickly say get some a, a working definition where we can on no no working definition, but some clarity on what an accountable person is and what a principal accountable person is. What are, what are, what are they? What do they do? The Building Safety Act introduced two new duty holders in relation to the occupation of a high risk building for, the, for, for, the, for its lifetime. So that's the accountable person and principal accountable person. In summary, the accountable person is any person who holds a legal estate in the common parts of a high risk building and or is a person who is responsible for the repair of the common parts of a high risk building. 
So typically we're looking at the owners of a high risk building um, or management company who's engaged in, in the running and maintenance of a high risk building. So that's the accountable person. Where there's only one accountable person, then they will also be the principal accountable person. However, if there's more than one accountable person, because as I said, you can have you can have the owner and a management company, so you can get two accountable people. Then the principal accountable person is the accountable person who is responsible for the repair of the structure and the exterior of the high risk building. In terms of their duties, the duties of an accountable person can be summarised as assessing building safety risks for the areas of the high risk building for which they're responsible and then um, taking all reasonable steps to prevent building safety risks materialising or mitigating the consequences of a risk. So if you find a risk, you've got to take steps to mitigate it or um, stop it materialising. So um, you can either repair it or I, mean, I, I don't know whether you've seen in the news recently, Barton House in Bristol, the local authority uh, was carrying out a survey of the building. So dealing with the first step, assessing building safety risks, they found a, a material structural defect, which had apparently been present since it, the building was constructed. Um, they assessed the risk as being so high that they evacuated the building. Quite what's going to happen to the building, we don't actually know know yet. But um, it yeah. could end up being demolished like other buildings have. Well, yeah, but 400 people got evacuated in four hours, as I, as I recall. Yes. Uh, you know, that's that's quite a high-energy response to a um, foreseeable or, 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 a, or a risk, which, as you say, has been there well, for 60 years. A, as I said, I, but I think this is the Building Safety Act in action. People hadn't really properly gone and ex- explored and understood the risks within the building. They'd assumed everything was all right. They hadn't gone and checked. And what, once they checked, you know, the, the you know, the, the risks of these large panel construction buildings is if a couple of panels go, then the entire thing can come down. And so as a precautionary measure, they, they have evacuated everything. But I think it was based on the idea that the, the building couldn't withstand explosion, fire or impact, which, you know, you could say about many buildings, couldn't you, depending on what level of fire, explosion or impact we're talking about. A risk averse approach to these things can be a catch all for yeah. a, a huge number so, of structures. I think you know it's a temporary evacuation while they're they're carrying out further assessments. But if we go back to the Ronan Point building back in the 1960s, a, a gas oven blew up, dislodged two or three panels, and a large chunk of the building then collapsed around it. So you, you can get these sudden events which which can cause a catastrophic risk to life. So um, yeah, it, it is something which needs to be done. Steering the conversation back to to what we're talking about. <laughs> the, the, what we should have been talking about and um, the duties of the accountable person. Uh, there's two other um, duties the accountable person has to do in, in, in addition to assessing building safety risks and then managing those. They have to maintain the golden thread of information in relation to the building. So that's the information necessary to manage building safety risks. And then they also have a duty to assist the principal accountable person in the performance of their duties. That takes me on to then the principal accountable person. They've got additional duties over and above that of the accountable person, as you'd expect. So firstly, they have to register the higher risk building with the building safety regulator. Secondly, they've got to prepare and maintain a safety case report for the building, identifying building safety risks and the steps which have been taken to address those risks. So again, this is something that the building safety regulator will want to look at. They need to establish a system for reporting building safety risks um, to the building safety regulator. So this is so the regulator can effectively get a better understanding of the inherent risks within the building stock in England. And then finally, the principal accountable person has to engage with the residents to discuss the management of the high-risk building 
and the building safety decisions which are taken in relation to that building. And also they, they have to have a procedure in place to resolve resident complaints. So this is dealing with one of the, the, the main criticisms coming out of the Grenfell Tower inquiry is that residents were ignored and their complaints were ignored. So there are now mechanisms in place to, to give the residents a voice in the management of their buildings. But also the power of the accountable person presumably will work in opposition to that as well, isn't it? If, if the leaseholders or the tenants or whatever it is are doing things which maybe they shouldn't be doing, uh, then presumably the accountable person will see that as a risk and will have the power to stop them doing it. This is not actually an area I, I'm expert in. I mean, it's part of my, one of my real estate colleagues could probably answer this better than I can. But the Building Safety Act introduces various protections for leaseholders, but also introduces implied terms into all leases so that leaseholders can be prevented from knocking out walls, for instance, which might propose, you know, pose a risk to the structural integrity of the building. So, so yes, you can you can take steps against leaseholders if they are doing something which would, you know, uh, impinge on the yeah or create a building safety risk yeah okay you before we for the listeners before we started you explained to me that the accountable person is a is a position which happens by default by dint of of ownership in some respects do you want to just give a sense on that because that was a very bad explanation from my point of view just to sort of clarify the the accountable person and principal accountable roles are duties which are imposed by statute so you can't avoid them you're not appointed to those roles if you have a legal interest in a high risk building or you've accepted management functions in relation to a high risk building then you will be an accountable person or almost certainly be an accountable person there are certain caveats and exemptions but uh, i think there's a starting point you know, if you if you if you have a freehold or a lot or or, or leasehold of a high risk building, or as you're saying, you're a management company taking on the management responsibilities, then you are going to be an accountable person and be subject to those duties. Fine. And then uh, just very quickly, because I get very confused with the fact that the Building Safety Act applies to all buildings, and yet we have this kind of two stage conversation. So accountable persons relates to higher risk buildings, but if you have buildings which are under eighteen meters high which still have the ability to act applied to them in general terms you don't have a responsible person you have an accountable person is that is that right not quite no so uh, the building safety act introduced a whole new building safety regime which is applicable across the entire built environment sector as part of that new regime we've got the concept of higher risk buildings which are buildings which are over 18 meters or seven stories in height contain two or more residential units or effectively or or a student accommodation so so that's a high risk building for the purposes of the occupational side of it slightly different um, for the construction side of it but we'll, i think kayla has already covered that so we've got a new building safety regime for high risk buildings which requires an accountable person to manage the building safety risks during the occupation of that building at the moment there's no equivalent regime for for residential buildings below the 18 meter threshold although this may come in the future we're, we're looking at you know the secretary of state can change the thresholds by regulation and there is speculation that the threshold might come down from 18 meters down to 11 meters and th- these height thresholds are slightly arbitrary but they're set on, on an analysis of risk to the occupants so the accountable person is only in relation to um, higher risk buildings. What we do have um, is the concept of a responsible person. This concept um, was introduced under the Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order 2005 and effectively says that any building which is a workplace, so offices, 
care homes, hospitals, commercial units, um, requires a responsible person to manage fire safety risks uh, under the RRO, Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order. The Building Safety Act then amended the definition of the, of the or extended the definition of the responsible person to cover anyone who's responsible for the management of the non-domestic parts of a multi-unit residential building. So that, that's any building with two or more residential units in it. And there's no height. Re- so any person who's got control of the non-domestic parts of a residential building will also be a responsible person for the um, purposes of the RRO. So, yeah, okay. So the responsible person is predominantly non-domestic uh, responsibility yes. and the tangible person is where there's two or more residential properties within an 18-storey, 18 18-metre 18 or 7-storey building or higher. Yes. So if you're, right. if you're below 18 metres, there is no function that complies with this requirement. So below 18 metres, there's no requirement to have an accountable person, but you could still have a, um, re- or you, you will still have a responsible person for a, for a, a you know, a residential building of, say, five storeys. They will still be re- required to um, look after the common parts of the building and manage the building safety risks in their, in accordance with the RRO. Just to also yeah. clarify, I mean, for a higher risk building, you could have a situation where it's a multi-use building. So you have offices or shops on the ground floor and then residential above it, in which case you'll have a responsible person in relation to the the, the commercial section. Then you'll also have an accountable person for the higher risk building element of it. They're under obligation to effectively cooperate and coordinate their activities. But there is a bit of joined up thinking here where there are multiple parties involved. Yeah, and that's where you get many, many accountable persons or responsible persons, and therefore you need the principal accountable person to take leadership yes. over that situation. Okay. Yes. So what so what skills, experience, knowledge, as we say in the jargon, uh, might an accountable person possess? Well, as, as we mentioned already, the accountable person um, is a role which is effectively imposed by statute. Um, and so any person who holds the sort of legal estate and common parts of a high-risk building um, will be an accountable person. So... There's no particular skills or experience are required to undertake this role. However, any person who is deemed to be an accountable person would be very sensible to familiarise yourself with the, the duties and take all reasonable steps to comply with those. I mean, so it, it's it's not a it's not a professional role. It, it's a, anyone who who fulfils the the, requ- the requirements will, you know will be deemed to be an accountable person. Um, if you find yourself in that sort of situation, um, there's some very useful guidance on the Building Safety Regulators website. And um, we, as a firm, provide specific training to parties who have assumed such duties. So we've got various clients who've got large property portfolios. Um, so we, we've been talking to them about what they need to do as an accountable person. You know, effectively, normal members of the public who have exercised the the RTM, the right to manage legislation, and have assumed responsibilities of their, uh, for the management of their buildings, We've been providing advice to them. It's interesting, isn't it, that you know we, we're having a whole legislative framework about competency, and yet there's an imposition on a punter who owns a building without any necessary demand that they have competencies. That, that's what I'm trying to get at in terms of the, you know, they will have yeah. to become aware of this stuff, in which case they will have to demonstrate that they are themselves competent. Yeah, I mean, it's something we, we touched on before, the original Building Safety Act or the Draft Building Safety Act did include the requirement for a building safety manager to be appointed by the accountable person to assist them in this role. Um, that was dropped at the last moment to provide accountable persons with more flexibility. And so if they had the skills in-house, they didn't have to appoint a building safety manager. But th- there's nothing to stop 
um, an accountable person sub effectively subcontracting elements of their role to a professional to carry out, but they can't absolve themselves of their responsibilities by subcontracting, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the billing schedule manager was got rid of due to leaseholder pressure on costs. Yes, uh, that was... It, 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 was, it was felt that it was going to you know, um, impose another layer of costs on leaseholders. Um, so they, they dropped the role to give you flexibility. If you want one, you can have one. Yeah. If you don't want one, you don't have to have one. The principal designer has a duty, I understand all that, written into the Building Safety Act, but can the kind of person demand more of them? Uh, the short answer is no. So for a new build, high-risk building, the principal designer and principal contractor are required to hand over via the client, gone through the information to the accountable person at completion and prior to the issue of the building control certificate by the building safety regulator. And the accountable person is required to confirm receipt. Thereafter, there's no statutory duty on the principal designer or principal contractor to provide information to the accountable person but one thing i would say is there could be a contractual duty so if you if you are a principal designer principal contractor in relation to a new high risk building check the contract what it says about providing information to the accountable person so that there, there might be a duty under your contract to provide further information for existing high-risk buildings the accountable person is under a duty to take reasonable steps to source information to collect golden thread information if they haven't already got it so the accountable person might request such information from a principal designer or a principal contractor and i suggest it would be sensible to provide that information if you have it um, just from you know the very least from a um, reputational point of view you don't want it getting out to the press that you know you've withheld information but if you hold information if it's within your power you, you, you can give it to, to the accountable person but you know you, you probably want to you know, request payment for your reasonable costs of providing the information you know to ensure that you're not out of pocket <laughs> if you have the information there's no reason not to provide it i i would suggest okay the whole purpose of this is to kind of provide information that the building is compliant with the building regulations effectively just to sort of talk you through this then so the building safety regulation is there is, is there as you see to oversee the new re regime although they will check what principal designs principal contractors are doing at various stages of the gateway regime gateway two and gateway three the fact that they review and approve it doesn't absolve the principal designer principal contractor from carrying out their duties and they will still be responsible for any errors in the works that they carried out if you fail to comply with different aspects of the building safety re regime, as you know, there are some significant sanctions um, which the building safety regulator can seek to apply. Firstly, there's unlimited fines for businesses and for individuals, there's unlimited fines and up to two years in prison. I think enforcement by the building safety regulator is likely to be focused on failures to comply with the processes in the new building regime, have the parties properly um, coordinated their activities, have you adopted a robust change control procedure? Has the building been occupied prior to the issue of a building control certificate? So I think they'll be focusing on that rather than looking at specific details of whether or not the building regulations have been complied with. But a failure to comply with the building regulations could still be an offence. As a designer, you'll be required to take all reasonable steps to ensure that the design is compliant with the building regulations. But realistically, that's going to be equivalent to your contractual duty of care. So if you can demonstrate that you are using reasonable skill and care in the carrying out of your design, then that should be a defence to any enforcement proceedings, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that brings me great comfort. I just wonder, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think what we've seen in 
the immediate response to the Fire Safety Act and all the rest of it is a lot of fire engineers who obviously are there to really stretch the uh, design possibilities beyond the approved documents. A lot of those have kind of retreated a little bit and are just playing safe. And I just wonder whether the same impact will happen here. If you, if your duty is to comply with the burn regulations, then once you go beyond what it says in the approved document, which we all know is guidance, but you know we can take these red. Do you foresee that happening a little bit more boring compliance with the approved documents rather than imaginative architecture being carried forward? I'm appealing to your architectural training here. Well, I think this is a it's a genuinely interesting question, and I suspect the reality of the situation is that many designers are likely to be more risk adverse in relation to building safety risks and will use more robust structural and fire engineering solutions than would have, they would have done previously. So I think that it's, it's not going to be the end of innovative design, but I think that innovative design is now probably going to attract a premium as designers will be taking on greater risk. And if innovative designs are used, clients need to be prepared for additional delays and costs during the gateway regime, as the building safety regulator will take probably take more time to assess whether the use of such an innovative design creates any building safety risks which can be avoided. I, I think there is, well, for, for the foreseeable future, that there is probably going to be a retreat to the tried and tested, as opposed to doing something more innovative. Yeah, no, we'll see who goes to court and we'll, we'll learn from uh, their mistakes. Since you mentioned uh, gateways and delays and all the rest of it, as I understand it on gateway two, uh, which is at the stage where you're kind of a tender, just about to go on construction, there will be a 12-week determination period from receipt of full information. I just wondered what that might mean, whether we're all just left twiddling our fingers for 12 weeks. How do you imagine this panning out? And, and just mention also gateway three, because again, there's another huge period of, of time while it's been considered whether it complies or not. How's that going to work? So gateway two, this is the sort of design phase, uh, requires the client to make an application to um, the building safety regulator for building control approval. That application needs to be accompanied by sufficient information to allow the building safety regulator to assess whether the design um, has adequately considered the treatment of building safety risks and to make sure that such risks aren't baked into the design. There's nothing prescriptive within the Building Safety Act itself about what sufficient information is, but it's likely to equate to the design being at REBA work stage four. So it's going to be pretty advanced. With regard to the issue of delay around Gateway 2, um, Gateway 2 represents a hard stop in the development process. So no construction activities can be commenced prior to the receipt of building control approval. So just to unpack that in a bit more detail, a construction activity means undertaking any element of the permanent works. So while the application for building control approval is going on, no permanent works can be carried out on site during that 12 weeks. Oh, it's up to 12 weeks. We don't know how long it's going to take, but I think, yes, you're probably safe to assume the worst case scenario in any, in any programme. So allow 12 weeks. During that period, no permanent works can be carried out but site enabling work, so demolition, site clearance, trial pits, um, trial um, piles and things like that can still be carried out during the period. So, yes, there is a risk that you'll have to down tools, but there is there is work which can be carried out prior to the building control application being approved. Then turning to look at gateway three. But you are, but you are reliant on getting that gateway to approval. I mean, obviously, I understand that the liability may lie with the architect or whoever 
putting in an application which doesn't comply, in which case then more fool them. But, you know, these things happen, don't they? And in the normal course of events, you would have a situation where you could add additional information to clarify to the local authority or to now the regulator to demonstrate compliance. But if you are saying, I'm going to now go to tender, I'm going to accept tender, I'm going to do some enabling works, I'm going to crack on on site and then find out in 12 weeks or more that it's been stopped uh, or there's a, you know, it fails to, to comply with the regulator, then you've got mud on your face, haven't you? Or was it egg on your face? That's egg on your face, uh, mud on your boots. Well, <laughs> no, probably no mud on your boots. You're not allowed on site. Um, so, yeah, there, there is that risk. I mean, as you're saying, Gateway 2 is a hard stop for high-risk buildings. So if you're working on a high-risk building, you've got to get building control approval before you start carrying out any permanent works. What that means is probably going to be a, a, a restructure of the way we um, procure high-risk buildings will probably be a move away from the more full-blooded design and build process, which I, I remember even when I was working, you know, in an architectural practice, we were pretty much designing as quickly, you know, they were building as quickly as we we could design it. Um, so you won't be able to go down that route anymore. You are going to have to effectively finalise the design, get it approved, and then send it out to tender. I mean, you can still do design and build, and I think there will be an appetite for design and build because the clients will still want a single point of responsibility, you know, you know, you know, a single person they can go to to organise, you know, their design and construction of their new project. But it's going to be a more staged design and build process. So you, you're going to get you're going to get your design and build contractor on board. They are going to have to design it, pause, and then maybe maybe a second, uh, you know, sort of a retender almost at that stage for them then to carry out the construction works. It's going to be a step change in the way we're approaching this. But again, it's being, I think we can all acknowledge as a construction industry, there were manifest failings in the way these buildings have been designed and constructed in the past. And this is a, a sort of, you know, a means of putting a, a check on what we're doing. And as we're saying, making sure there's no building safety risks baked into a design, you know, before it's too late so it's, it's no it's, it's no good getting halfway through a build phase and then then discovering a, a building safety issue it's cheaper to, to to resolve that at the design phase you know when it's all on paper rather than when the building's halfway up no i, I understand i mean obviously we've been talking about this for 50 years and beyond haven't we from egan and yeah. and all the rest of it to try to get uh, front loaded the design decisions and get it all clarified before we start on site but, you know, come back to me in five years' time. We'll see whether this has actually been an improvement. Just another factor to consider in relation to the design of a building is once you've got building control approval, that design is essentially fixed. You are not permitted to make significant changes to that design um, willy-nilly. If you want to make a significant change to an approved design, you've got to go back to the building safety regulator and secure their approval. And um, you're not allowed to implement that change prior to that approval being received. And again, I think it's a further, they have a further six weeks to look at any proposed significant design change. So as a client, if you want to change your design, you need to think very carefully about whether or not to do it, because there will be significant delay and potentially cost implications of changing the design once it's been approved. Is there a definition, I can't remember, is it a definition of what those significant changes might mean? Obviously, if you're going to change a door handle from aluminium to stainless steel, I assume that doesn't count. No. So, so basically, 
For a high-risk building, you have to operate a robust change control policy and procedure. All changes to design have to be recorded. Then there are two categories, additional categories of changes. You have a notifiable change and a major change. A notifiable change is changes to the construction control plan, changes to layout of residential units, changes number of dimensions or number or dimensions of openings. So they're relatively minor changes which won't impact building safety or, or the building safety strategy. A major change um, is one which will undermine the basis on which the building control approval was granted. That would include a material change to any use of the high-risk building, change in height or, or the width of the, the high-risk building itself, change the number of stories, change in layout of common parts, change the structural design, changes to design of external walls. So it's a, a it's the major change which is the, where the building safety regulator approval has to be sought and they have to be as the same they are significant changes um you know changing doorknobs nobody really cares that has to be recorded in the change control policy or the procedure but it's only if it's a major change is uh, going to be um, implemented then that's when building safety regulator has to be consulted and their approval has to be obtained before making that change Fine. So, and I think we mentioned last time that it's £144 an hour uh, charged by the building safety regulator for that um, privilege. Uh, yes. So the building safety regulator will charge um, for, for their activities that there will be an application fee, which varies depending on the, the type of the application. Um, but they will also then charge on an hourly basis for their services, shall we say. And yes, I think their yep. default rate's around £144 an hour. Any client will need to factor in when, when you know, to in, you know, when making changes is that there are going to be significant additional costs associated. Yeah, with. yeah, absolutely. Just very quickly, I think I mentioned this to Kayla and I think she may have referred it back to you. A question of like, if you're in an existing high-rise or high-risk building, can we use those terms interchangeably now? A higher-risk building, and you are one of the residents and you want to do some work in your flat, which which um, requires building regs approval in normal circumstances, whether that's changing a plug uh, in your kitchen or, or whatever it might be. Yes. Let, let's just say some reasonably major changes. Do you then have to go to the building safety regulator to, to get that approved or do you just get that done on a local um, authority? So if you are a leaseholder wanting to make changes to your property, I mean, I think the first point of point of call is going to be check your lease to see what that says. Yeah. Um, the majority of works leaseholders are going to carry out will not be structural or, you know, um, result in a material building safety risk. So I wouldn't anticipate leaseholders actually having having any engagement at all with the building safety regulator. If you people are carrying out wider renovation works to an existing higher risk building then they potentially will have to engage with the building safety regulator depending on the nature of those works and there will be a effectively a cut down version of the gateway regime applied to those projects but the building safety regulator has been very conscious about you know building safety regulators is, is, has already said that they will try to apply anything in a reasonable proportionate approach because obviously renovations re repainting an interior of a building that's not an issue minor reconfigurations it's not going to be proportionate to apply the full-blown building safety regime so 
we don't know quite what it's going to look like at the moment. The re re renovation works will potentially be caught by the new building safety regime. And I think if you are a, a principal accountable person considering you know, renovation works in an existing high risk building, I think the, the safest thing to do is just engage with the building safety regulator and, and discuss what you're planning to do and the steps that they will require you to go through to ensure that you know compliance with the new building safety regime. Okay. Unfortunately, we're back to the risk-averse approach. The idea that you 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 engage with the building safety regulator and they say, don't worry, crack on. Uh, I can't see that uh, happening in the early stages. At very <laughs> least. Um, but just move, let's move on to the, since we've done the gateway thing, gateway three, the completion stage, um, the client has to submit a completion certificate application to the building safety regulator for high-risk buildings, which has an eight-week determination period. Uh, and the client cannot occupy the building without it. So the architect cannot issue the practical completion certificate. Uh, just very quickly, I say practical completion certificate, but actually the British standard, I think, or the Building Safety Act itself actually mentions final certificates. I'm a bit confused. Gateway three will occur at the current completion final certificate stage, uh, it says on the government website. So um, first of all, do we know what we're talking about? And secondly, how is that really going to work? You know, you do your snagging list, you do your final kind of inspection, you ready to issue a practical completion certificate, and then there seems to be a six-week delay. Am I yeah. paranoid? Uh, no. Um, so the government website, and, and I think this is um, something the government's generally guilty of, is you uses relatively loose language. Um, so just to absolutely clear about what we're talking about here. So Gateway 3 requires the client to apply to the building safety regulator for a building control completion certificate. Now, the words building control aren't featured in the in in on the government website or in the legislation, but this helps to just sort of try and clarify what we're talking about. So it's an application for a building control completion certificate and the high risk building cannot be legally occupied prior to the issue of, of that building control completion certificate. However, a building control completion certificate is slightly different from a practical completion certificate. Practical completion certificate is a contractual requirement and the the architect's ability if they're acting as contract administrator to issue a practical completion certificate will be determined by the requirements of the building contract so as a default position practical completion can be granted um, when the client can take beneficial occupation of the building i.e the work is complete save for minor defects that is then different from the building control completion certificate which is a, a legal requirement before the building can be occupied so I think it's just something important to bear in mind is practical completion certificate is a contractual completion certificate to show the works are complete for the purposes of the contract. Building control completion certificate is the certificate which needs to be issued by the building safety regulator before the building is occupied. So yes, there but is one, a... but but they balance each other out, don't they? I wouldn't. Would I issue a practical completion certificate if I didn't think the building safety regulator would not come back in six weeks' time and say actually there's a few bits missing? Then my certificate is uh, is void. Well, not void, but incorrect. Well, so one thing we are doing as a firm is um, we are amending our construction contracts to. When well, we would typically, even before this, it, it, we would amend the construction contract to impose additional conditions that have to be achieved prior to the practical completion certificate being issued. These amendments would now include the provision of all information required by the client to support its application to the building safety regulator and to ensure that all gold thread information has been provided. 
but assuming all that information has been provided, then the PC, the practical computer certificate can be issued. But there is, yes, there, there, there is a, a tension between the issue of a practical completion certificate, notwithstanding there might be some minor defects, and whether or not the building control regulator issues the building control completion certificate, which will then allow occupation. How that gets resolved, again, it, 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 realistically, it's going to be a commercial issue for, for discussion between the parties when they're, they're putting their building contract in place. It might be that practical completion certificate will be issued and then allowing and then, and then in that sort of eight week period, the client can go in and do sort of fit out works or something like that while they're waiting for their building control completion certificate to come through. But I, yes, thought the, I thought the client couldn't occupy the building without difference between fit out works uh, and you know sort of go, going in and putting putting stuff into the building as opposed to occupation which is people moving into residential units so that's what we're talking about occupation here if you're thinking about thinking about a sort of a, a mixed use building you could have the commercial elements where you know people are going in and fitting those out but people couldn't then be an occupation of of the flats above it prior well, that'd to be a night That'd be a nightmare for liquidated damages, wouldn't it? Potentially, yes. Again, these are all issues which will need to be thrashed out when negotiating your your construction contract. Wow, wow, okay. Well, JCT contracts are coming out as a new version uh, next year, aren't they? So, we'll uh, see the, if any yes, so new JCT um, twenty twenty four will be coming out. Um, we we haven't seen it yet, but yes, they they are being amended we understand to reflect uh, the requirements of the building safety act okay well hopefully they've listened to this podcast and they're furiously scribbling some new amendments uh, in. <laughs> okay look just to just to conclude i suppose um if this is a conclusion or a hiatus point i don't know but there's a huge number of secondary legislative measures and circulars and information on websites and goodness knows what plump for one or something can you tell us anything that we've missed out here uh, that is, is important to architects or principal designers. As you say, uh, so the, yeah, the Building Safety Act and the secondary regulations um, are vast, and I wouldn't recommend anyone trying to read it all, so please spare a thought for us lawyers who have to. Um, if you are going to read one or look into one, I, I would recommend reading the Building Regulations Amendment England Regulations 2023. Um, these set out at Section 6, the new duties on clients, principal designers and principal contractors um, relating to the building safety regime and the party's roles and obligations as yeah, um, under those duties and the, the requirements around competence. So I think that's probably section six is probably the, the bit to read and understand as the, being the most relevant to designers on a day to day basis. If you're looking for further reading, you know, you've got some time over Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd recommend reading guidance issued by the Building Safety Regulator on the new gateway regime. Um, it's slightly difficult to find, but if you type into Google or any other search engine, building control, an overview of the new regime, you should be able to find it and you should be able to download it from the Building Safety Regulator's website. It, it's quite an easy guide to just the whole new gateway regime compliance and the duties of the principal designers principal contractors perfect okay look that's that's it tom uh i'll let you get back to earning some money now thanks very much indeed to uh, tom wald he's the director of legal practice at burgess salmon that's www.burgess b-u-r-g-e-s hyphen s-a-l-m-o-n dot com burgess 
terrific clarification. There's probably still as many questions thrown up as there were answers, uh, but hopefully for the listeners, it all makes a bit more sense than it did when we started. Don't worry, there'll be another piece of bureaucratic legislation around the corner, so don't relax too much. But that's all we've got time for today. Please tune in to the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcast. My name is Austin Williams. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.